This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a documentary podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. It is stupid easy to kill a person. I've killed a significant number of people. I counted 13 with my rifle, and then I stopped counting. And that was just with my rifle. With the radio, I killed a lot more people. Like a lot. (laughs) A lot more people. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 6, Husband, Father, Killer. I never came back. You know, none of us came back. John Bollinger went to the war in Afghanistan, but that's not who came back from the war in Afghanistan. John Bollinger is a lot of things. A veteran, an artist, a writer, a snowboard instructor, a rock climber, an apprentice arborist... But above all, he's a family man. Hi, you must be Hannah. I am. This is Hannah. I've heard so much about you. Uh, it's really nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet yeah. you. Hi, Hannah. He and his wife, Hannah, have two boys, 10-year-old JB and 5-year-old Benny. Hey, JB and Benny. He's the bigger one. Benny's a little. They just <laughs> discovered that you can't spend half an hour on the merry-go-round. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they've also got two very friendly doodle dogs. <laughs> hey, pups. So many wiggles. So many wags. <laughs> The family lives in a spacious home on a hill above Spearfish, South Dakota. The house has a large, finished basement where the boys can run wild without driving their parents nuts. It's one of those open floor plans with a cozy living area and a big kitchen all in one room. There are cool trinkets here and there that they've picked up on their travels. But the thing that really ties the place together is on the dining room table. Well, it's an old sheet. It's sheet days were done. And we're Not just any old sheet. This thing looks like an original Jackson Pollock. It's a work in progress that began on a visit to Bo's dad's place in Montana. The family was hunkered indoors during a blizzard, and they decided it would be fun to paint together. Bo didn't want to make a mess, so... we just I just grabbed whatever sheet was on top, and now we paint on it. And I think we've been painting on it for... Two, three years. It's so cool. It really looks like a work of mid-20th century modern art. 
Yeah. It's my favorite piece. <laughs> it actually got an orange juice stain on one of the corners of it. Like, yeah, right there last week. And I was like going to wash it. And I'm like, no, no, that's the story. Bo looks the part of the artsy type who's been overtaking the former Marine these last 10 years. He's got a scruffy beard and wears rumpled clothes with rips and paint stains. If he wasn't still fond of his camouflage boonie hat, you might never guess he was a veteran at all. Just go ahead and introduce yourself with all of those things. My name is... When I first met Bo in Sangin, he was 20 years old, all coiled muscle and bone. He was the squad's radio operator, and whenever we stopped on patrol, he usually stuck close to the squad leader so he could be ready to relay traffic from PB fires. That's usually where I was, too, so we ended up bullshitting a lot. He struck me as a pretty easygoing dude. In the portrait I took of him, he's blurry because he can't stop laughing. But there was a layer of intensity behind his eyes, too. Being at war was like drinking from a fire hose, and Bo had no time to figure it all out. As well as they're smart because they'll, you know, fire at you from behind an IED tree line, and then when you do what Marines do and run towards gunfire, they, uh, they fucking, they have IEDs waiting for you, and then if you get around those IEDs, they're waiting for you to shoot at you again, or if you hit those IEDs, they're waiting to shoot at you. What do you think the Taliban are fighting for? What do you think? Why do they go to all this trouble? You know... I've asked myself that question every day since I got here. I think uh, they're, uh, they're thinking that uh, they're winning the war and that they're, they're showing that America can't run the world. I, think, I honestly think that's what it is. is they're, trying to, they're trying to prove that America's not as good as they say they are. What do you think is the hardest part of your job? The hardest part about my job is, has to be uh, calling up casualties. I hate calling up casualties because my friends and my brothers that are fucking, they're fucked up. Yeah, that's, that's the hardest part. The funnest part is calling in fire missions. Firefights are fun. I enjoy firefights. You drop bombs on people and kill bad men. That's, that's what we're here for. Of course, it wasn't all fun. A lot of the time, it was pure hell. And Bo had an extra weight on his shoulders. He was one of only two Marines in the squad who had a wife and baby back home. What do you miss most about being home and about civilian life? I miss my wife, my wife and kid more than anything, just being able to sit with him. I miss that. How old's your kid? He's, uh, he was a year when we came here. His birthday was actually just after we came here. So he's like a year and five or six months now. About five months, five and a half months. John Bradley Bollinger. My wife uh, picked his name. I wanted to name him Yogi. And we call him JB. I miss my wife and my son more than anything. I'd, I'd live this life every day if, if they were here with me, but I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want them to live this life. John Bollinger and Hannah Pfefferly met when they were little kids in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hannah tells me the story in their living room in Spearfish. Well, my first memory was of this scruffy, messy, rough-and-tumble kid. With, we went to Catholic school with uniforms white shirt and navy pants and you know this really old building with the long asbestos tile hallways and john would come down the hallway on his elbows or sliding and his shirt was never white (laughs) i would come home from school my sisters would say hannah what was the best part of your day and i'd say jack bollinger oh my god i was obsessed it was a little stalkerish you know so 
in kindergarten. I told his mom I was going to marry him. And she said, Jack's going to be a priest. And I guess here we are, 20, 25, 24 years later. She won. <laughs> she won. Yeah. Hannah and Bo joked that they started dating in kindergarten, but they took a long break. They both saw other people throughout elementary and middle school. They didn't get really serious until much later. I mean, we were high school boyfriend and girlfriend. We were as serious as you can be in high school. But we graduated and kind of had the reality check of he was going to the military and I was going to college. And if life so happens that we end up crossing paths again as adults, then we'll see what happens. For now, we're going to go our separate ways. And he went off to boot camp and I found out I was pregnant. My due date was April 1st, <laughs> which felt like, you know, just the universe just adding an extra little jab. Your due date is April Fool's Day and your life is falling apart and you're not going to college anymore because instead you're having a kid and you're going to stay home and go to community college. And so I'm, you know, trying to figure all of this out and sit down and write a letter to send to my no longer boyfriend in boot camp to tell him that I'm pregnant. She scribbled out a note and mailed it off to Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. I think I said I, I might kind of sort of be pregnant in that letter. And that coupled with my due date of April 1st, just none of it went over very well. I don't think he believed me. It was a serious conversation for a couple of kids to hash out via snail mail. There was a series of letters. You said the first one, are you sure you're really pregnant? Yeah, because I was like, I kind of might sort of be pregnant. Like, the fuck does that mean? And then two days later, I got a letter from my dad that was like, Hannah's pregnant. Like, have no doubt, Hannah's pregnant. That's, you know, an 18-year-old handling some real heavy shit. You know, you... You have this path that you're going to take. You're 18, you're graduating high school, life is starting, and it's all just falling apart for me at this point. Like, I can't see how I'm going to get out of this. I'm a pregnant teenager, and you never hear any success stories about pregnant teens, about teen moms. You just get really crappy MTV reality shows. In spite of the odds, Hannah and Bo made a choice. They would stay together. They'd become a family. I'm in boot camp for 13 weeks and she's been pregnant, you know, since a couple weeks before I went to boot camp. And it's like, oh, fuck. You know, how are we going to figure this one out? Well, it seems like you did figure it out. We figured it out. Lots of tears, lots of screaming, lots of fighting, and a stubbornness to give our kiddo a good life, you know? And there was no reason for us to not try and make it work. We didn't end on bad terms. It was just life is taking us a different direction. And it turns out life really wasn't taking us a different direction. And we were just really bad at listening to everything else out there. Hannah drove out from Cheyenne to California to live with Bo in base housing. In March 2010, she gave birth to JB. Not long after, Bo launched into the workup for the deployment. He was barely home. Then, right before JB's first birthday, Bo shipped off to Sangin. With her husband gone, Hannah decided to move back to Wyoming to be closer to her family. 
The lack of contact with Bo was excruciating. There was almost no communication at first. And the only like little bits of information that you would get would be from the other wives in the, in the platoon. Those little bits of information could be devastating. One of the girlfriends of another guy in the platoon in John's fire squad calls and goes, did you hear the news? Like, what do you mean? Did I, did I hear the news? I haven't heard anything. And she, she goes, Nick's dead. It was June 2011, and word had gotten back to the States that Nicholas O'Brien had been killed. And that, like, that was it. That was the moment that everything changed and became a little more real. And it didn't stop from that point on. It felt pretty relentless. It was, you know the rumor mill on the spouse and girlfriend side and the little snippets of communication from the guys who were actually there. And then there was a Facebook page that was set up and you'd see things come across the Facebook page and they'd say, what was it? They'd call it a black flag. Essentially like there's no communication. There was another name for it. Something river, like, like oh. river city, river, river city. city. It was yeah. river city. Yeah, River City meant somebody got hurt or killed and they needed 72 hours to inform the families. So you could have like a River City that lasted like six hours or you could have a River City that lasted like three weeks because people just keep getting fucking hit. <laughs> you know, like every, every two days or every three days somebody gets hit, you never make the goddamn mark. And it seemed from my perspective you know, in this really, like, emotionally raw, just trying to, like, deal with postpartum depression and make sure that my little boy is, you know, emotionally okay through this and still trying to go to school. (laughs) And it seemed like every time there was a River City, it was John's squad. Back home in Cheyenne, Dredd followed Hana everywhere. There was a point going to Laramie County Community College and, you know, community college is like the perfect place to recruit for the military. So they have this recruiter table set up at the entrance and I'm in this terrible place. I walk through the front doors, just go into class, and this recruiter approaches me in dress blues. And it was not a recruiter in my mind. I'm being approached by a guy in the military in dress blues, and my husband's insane in Afghanistan, and I lost it. I never heard that story. So you had never heard that the recruiter looked like a casualty officer to her? No. Literally in a life and death situation, why would I burden you with my with my shit when you being stressed means you could make just the wrong mistake and not come home? Yeah. 
you had known John for most of your life, but you guys were young. You'd only been married for a little while. You're a young mother raising this child alone while John is away. Tell me what, it, what it's like for you when John comes home. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, the perception of if the Marine Corps wanted you to have a spouse, they would have issued you one. So here we are toward the end of this deployment that it's been hell. And they're getting ready to come home. And so the battalion has these mental health seminars that they want the spouses to go to. And it's half a day long course of here are the signs of PTSD. Best of luck. And it felt like a pat on the back and send you on the way. That was it. No information about who to contact, what it really means. And so John comes home and it's just like this, he's home. He's been gone. I've been a single parent. You know, I use that term loosely. Been a solo parent. I guess probably a better way to put it. And going through my own mental health shit through all of this and physically he was home. I don't think it was really until, you know, second week being back. Woke up in the middle of the night getting choked. We'll be back after the break. Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The choking incident was terrifying for Hannah and for Bo. It was a bright red flashing light. Bo was in bad shape. You come out of the Marine Corps and you basically have a bachelor's or even higher because the amount of time that you do it, like a master's in killing people. I spent four years learning and teaching how to kill people. Yeah. Like. And doing it. And doing it. Yeah. And that was that. I think you may be able to talk about this stuff in a way that other people aren't. And I think you may have a perspective on it. I I can tell that you have a perspective on it that is really important and valuable. So to the extent that you're willing to talk about it, I would like to go there with you if you're able to. Oh, killing? Yeah. Okay. First guy ever shot. Kind of want to tell that story. It... It was, very, it was a very defining moment in the deployment for me. Because it was like, the first time we got shot at, I never saw the enemy. Up until that point, it was really quiet. And then it picked up all of a sudden. I remember we got in this gunfight. Gunfight, real quick. Just pop, pop, pop. And I got down. And I can see this muzzle flash. Flash, flash. I like look through my scope. I see the guy going back down. I'm waiting for just, you know, for for me, it felt like an eternity. It was probably only five, ten seconds, if that. But then I saw him do it again. I see his gun come up, pop, 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 fires a few rounds, lowers the gun back down, and then he sticks his head up, right? So I'm like, oh, now I got you, motherfucker. I got your number. So I saw him do it again. Last time he did it, pop, pop, pop. As soon as I saw that gun come down, I pulled the trigger. I saw it strike him, like, right here in the upper chest, and he just forward. I could hear that. I could hear the impact of the bullet. I could feel it. His rifle fell, and it was like his rifle was on the berm, and then he was, like, motionless. I remembered I was watching him through my sight. And as I'm watching him, I can see that they're, like, pulling him over the berm and they get him over and just after his hand goes I see a hand come up and then the rifle disappears and it was like alright I got that one I know I got that one and it was this really odd moment of like well you you now have killed a person how do you feel about this John? And at the time it was like proud i feel pride i protected myself i protected my brothers i did my job in the beginning the killing seemed trivial 
It's fucking easy. It is stupid easy to kill a person. I've killed a significant number of people. I counted 13 with my rifle, and then I stopped counting. In the situation, you're fighting for your life. I mean, I don't feel bad about it. It's when, when you're fighting an enemy and he wants to take your life, or she wants to take your life, or they want to take your friends' lives, or they're trying to help people take your lives, I've, I'm going to kill you. If it's me or you, you're going to die. Like the other riflemen in the squad, Bollinger carried an M4 carbine, a more compact version of the M16. But as the radio operator, he had serious firepower at his disposal. With the radio, I killed a lot more people. Like a lot. (laughs) A lot more people. Bo also had to use the radio to save lives. It was his job to relay the casualty report whenever someone got hurt. As the mayhem unfolded on June 12, 2011, the day of 3rd Squad's mass casualty, it was Bo who had to call in the medevac requests, which meant describing his friend's wounds in detail. That series of IED attacks in June filled Bo with a burning desire for revenge. I was so mad at the Taliban for what they did to our platoon between the 9th and the 15th that I approached it with the most violent mindset that you could imagine. After half the platoon was injured in just six days, Bo tells me the higher-ups loosened restrictions on heavy weapons like mortars. And it was his job to give the mortarmen the target coordinates. If we got into a fight, I'd be hitting the tree line they were shooting at us from, and at the same time, I'd be calling in the next fire mission for where I thought they were going to run. It's like, hey, fires, we're in a gunfight. This is where I'm at. The enemy's this far out in this direction or next to this building. Fucking get a gun on target, you know? Like, we need it now. And all of a sudden, you, you drop 15 mortars on their noggins, and the battle's just over. And it's just quiet. And you go and you look, and there's fucking nothing. There's no bullets. There's no guns. There's no bodies. There's no, you know, there's nothing. The Taliban often hid in plain sight dressing exactly the way that locals dressed, even pretending to farm while they observed the Marines' movements. So the squad was pretty used to the anxiety that came with not being able to distinguish the enemy from non-combatants. But it was downright creepy how, even when the Taliban did reveal themselves, firing at the Marines with AK-47s and light machine guns, they could still vanish into thin air. By the time we got there, they'd have cleaned up their rounds, they'd have cleaned up guns, they had cleaned up bodies, they'd have thrown, you know, dirt on blood, or they'd they'd make it look like no one was ever there, because that's part of their game. It's terror. There's no sign that there was anybody ever there. Like, and that's that's the trip, right? The Taliban were experts at hiding the evidence of their own casualties. But the damage they inflicted on Third Squad was something Bo and the rest of the guys had to confront point blank. Bo can still recall the details of the injuries he described in those medevac requests back in Sangin. They're all seared into his memory. But it was the last medevac request he made that really haunts him. Fucking Dutch. When he got hit, we just... 
We, I say me, kind of may have totally, totally lost my uh, humanity for a minute. And at that point in time, I truly did have the attitude of fuck the Taliban, fuck Afghanistan, fuck these people, fuck their animals, we should fucking nuke this place to pieces. There is nothing good here. I felt that there weren't people there, there weren't, I didn't care about the life, I didn't care about anything. I cared about... Paying back. Third Squad had been slogging it out in Sangin for more than five months when Dutcher got hit. For most of the deployment, it was constant. There was lulls here and there, but we were fighting. We were in a heavy, active fight. And then, like, a week before Dutch got hit, when he started sweeping, we, for some reason, were going into one of those lulls. We weren't getting shot at. And I think that's why Dutch trusted the guy. He's talking about the local man who was leading the squad down the path. The one Mendoza said he wished he'd shot after all the red flags. It was a down point. He hadn't been sweeping for long. And it's just all these combining factors. I mean, we were going home. We'd been there for so long. We'd been doing it for so fucking long. So long. And we just wanted to go home. When Dutcher got blown up, Bo kicked into machine mode. He got the details of Dutch's injuries from the corpsman and called in the bird. But he didn't stop there. Something had come unhinged. A guy Bo saw with his own eyes, the elusive enemy visible at last, had lured his friend into an IED, and Bo wanted him dead. I had a helicopter on the line with me, searching for the guy. From everything, all the information the guys were telling me, I described him to a T, and I was telling him to fucking fly into compounds if they had to. They could tell I was pissed. The fucking air coordinator took over on the call because I couldn't even fucking do my job talking to air because I wanted his ass so bad. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm shaking right now because, ooh, killed my friend. And we didn't get to give payback. There was no recourse for it and I sit here angered with it that I feel like I should have been able to fucking rip them to shreds can I ask you a really direct question oh. if you could have killed that guy do you think that it would have changed anything no it wouldn't change a damn thing I mean I don't, I don't know how many people I killed, but I killed enough people that one person is insignificant. And that's the terrifying thing. 
I'd like to say that I wish I would have killed him because that's how I thought then. But in hindsight, would it do good? Would it solve anything? No. It would just be more, more hurt, more anger. As relieved as Bo was to be back home with Hannah and JB after his deployment, it was also jarring. I'd never came back. You know, none of us came back. John Bollinger went to the war in Afghanistan, you know, but that's not who came back from the war in Afghanistan. It was rough for Hannah, too. She trekked all the way out to California from Wyoming again, this time with JB in a car seat in the back. They moved into a rundown apartment in San Clemente, just outside Camp Pendleton. I'm trying so hard to, like, just make things normal. I just wanted life to go back to normal. And through this whole process, you know, I'm like, let's go to a baseball game. Let's go to the zoo. Let's go to the mall. Like, trying to find some sort of normalcy, shoving him into these situations that really are just, like, terrible and making it worse over and over because, I don't know, just... Life goes on, right? You have to find that normal. And I had no idea that I was making it worse. Bo still had two years left in the Corps, but he'd been transferred over to 3-5, another battalion where he hardly knew anyone. Without the squad around him, Bo felt lost. Hypervigilance had become a default state, and he was having trouble controlling his defensive impulses and his aggressive ones. I remember it was Christmas and we were at the Mission Viejo Mall. I'm just, I'm just trying to Christmas shop. And it's packed because it's Southern California shopping mall during the holiday season and we get out to the car and John goes, I can understand why people walk through those places with a gun. It'd be so easy to just pop them off. That was, that was it, that was the comment. Oh, my God, you're not okay. Hannah was worried for JB's safety and her own. So she gave Bo an ultimatum. You're going to kill somebody or yourself. You can get help or we're going to go. Bo heard Hannah's warning loud and clear. He tried to get help within the military. Well, originally I went to my command and I told him, I'm not doing okay. (laughs) I don't think I'm okay. And this was like months, months after I'd been back. Like, and I already knew before that I wasn't doing okay, but I was so convinced that I could make myself do okay, that I could just like somehow push it all away and I would be fine. But it's like she talks about with Mr. Hyde is, is it's this. You don't even know when the switch has been flipped if you're in it. Yeah. It's fucking terrifying to have a triggered Marine unhappy with you. Displeased. Like, it's not an environment you want to live in. And it's not something that you want to put on people that you care about. Bo began seeing a Navy therapist named Doc Campbell. She helped him get on the right path, but seeking therapy had unexpected consequences. She ended up 
seeing the spot that he was in and made him combat and effective and took his weapons card from him and three five shunned him three five shunned him and with that you know the the spouses in three five shunned me too a weapons card is like a library card that marines use to check out their weapons from the armory losing it comes with a huge stigma Bo might as well have been forced to put on a straitjacket and parade around Camp Pendleton. He was punished. I lost my friends. I guess, you know, if you Were they really friends yeah. if, if they turn on you like that? Bo was undeterred. He knew he owed it to Hannah and JB to get better, so he fully committed himself to therapy. His leaders at 3-5 were less enthusiastic. They allowed him to attend sessions twice a week, but they didn't make it easy on him. They made you hike out of the field to make it, like, walk out of the field to be picked up by me at the end of, you know, you're, you're on base. Like, you've got these, these roads that, like, active fire zone, do not enter, and I have to go pick them up. Because <laughs> there's... And- that's, that's how they were going to handle supporting him in his mental health needs. It was, cool, you have an appointment. You're still going to the field. You're just going to have to hike out. Your wife can pick you up, right? When Bo was nearing the end of his Marine Corps contract, he went through the Mandatory Transition Assistance Program, or TAP, which was supposed to smooth the way back into civilian life. It was a crash course in how to live on the outside, how to file for VA benefits, how to look for jobs, how to behave like a normal human being in a civilian workplace. Here's a clue. You can't scream at people and make them do push-ups when they screw up. It was a lot of death by PowerPoint, and Bo says it wasn't much help. And then they're like, oh, best of luck. Have a good one. Yeah. And it's like, you know, well, what are my benefits? And it's like, oh, well, at TAPS, we gave you that sheet of paper that you doodled all over. You know, and talked. we talked about it in a seminar for four and a half hours. Yeah. And you're like, I don't even know what, where to start. After Bo got out, he returned to Cheyenne with Hannah and JB, over a thousand miles from Doc Campbell. And he still had a long way to go in his therapeutic journey. Seven, eight years ago, JB was just a little guy. He was, <sighs> yeah, he was like five. I just got out of the Marine Corps. And I, I have sleep issues. I'm super hyperactive after sleeping. And he, uh, he like jumped on my chest and then, you know, I was asleep and then the reaction was like, tossed him across the room. And in a moment, as I'm waking up and as a rational action of throwing this thing away from me, I'm watching my kid fly away from me and I'm like, you have to move to help him, you know, and he was fine, but it was, a, you know, it's an intense moment and like things with my wife where it's, you know, you lose it just for a second, you lose it. Bo kept his promise to Hana. He didn't give up on treatment. Eventually, he found a VA therapist who encouraged him to write about his experiences He filled notebook after notebook with reflections on all the horrible shit that he witnessed and did in Sangin. Factual accounts gave way to fictional reimaginings, and the writing helped Bo examine his deployment with a fresh perspective. It also brought back vivid memories, and there was one person who kept popping up in his writing. Michael Dutcher. 
when he spoke to the Afghan people, he'd always say, please and thank you. And he's very polite. And one night, when I was pissed off about something, and I said, why do you fucking, why are you so polite to these people? You know, why do you come up to them and say, hey, you know, raise, would you, would you please raise your arms for me? Instead of saying what the rest of us said, fucking point a rifle at him and say, fucking lift your shirt, motherfucker, or I'll fucking drop you. And uh, I asked him, you know, why, do you, why the fuck do you treat these people like that? Why do you think, please, why do you say thank you? So, because sometimes our only humanity is in our words. And if that's all we can hang on to, then that's all we got. So we have to hang on to it. I don't think he hated the Taliban. I don't think he hated the Afghan people. I don't think he hated anyone. And of all of us, he didn't deserve it. He deserved it so little that that's how he got it. Dutch's death drove Bo to the edge of the abyss. He was filled with rage and hate, ready to use the weapons at his disposal to cause maximum hurt to the people he blamed for killing his friend. But once he got back home from Sangin, Bo had no outlet for all that rage and hate. So it turned inward, where it mixed with his fathomless grief and began to poison him. It took years for Bo to discover that the way back from the edge, the way back to humanity, was by remembering Dutch and the way he looked at the world. When all of us were looking at animals, we're looking at enemies, we're looking at targets, we're looking at threats, he was seeing people. And him saying that to me, him telling me that just by using manners... You have your humanity. If that's all you got, brother, that's all you got. If please and thank you is the best you can muster for your fellow man, then please and thank you is what you get. I I can't even put into words how important that is or was and how it instilled in me that that the very beginning seeds of empathy. John Bollinger may not have come home from Afghanistan, but the person who did return to Hana and JB was coming alive again little by little. He was tending to those seeds of empathy and seeking enlightenment in his trauma. We'll be back after the break.
I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When he first got out of the Marines in 2013, Bo worked at a pawn shop his dad owned in Cheyenne. He was short-fused and glum. He wasn't in the right frame of mind to deal with the hard-luck cases and hagglers looking for a deal. So he left the pawn shop and got a job as a coach at his sister's gym. Exercising all day and teaching people was a much better fit for Bo. He loved it. Until one day when his old life came calling. I was teaching I was, I was, I was a personal trainer and one of my clients brought in their 12 year old kid and I could not see that kid and I could no longer deny it that I killed somebody's baby. Somehow, Bo had managed to lock that moment away for years. But suddenly, there it was, conjured up by the flesh-and-blood child before him. There's this kid who was 12, 13. Couldn't have been much older. And we were in a, we were in a gunfight. And I saw him, and I didn't want to take the shot. But he was shooting. He had an AK. I had to take the shot. I didn't want to take the shot, but I had to take the shot. That's the one I... (sighs) That's the one. It was clean. 
When Bo was a 20-year-old Marine in Sangin, he was surprised to find that the killing was easy. And in his own mind, he'd always been able to justify the shots he took. But this one, this one was complicated. And the sudden memory of it forced him to face a cold truth. He was a killer, and there was nothing easy about that. Once you recognize that, you know, once you really, really recognize that, then every time you try and deny it, you're, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. And for me, after that, I started seeing kids in that same age group. And I kept seeing the same little fuckers. <laughs> And it was clean. It was a clean kill. I had to face that. I had to face that first. That the one I regretted, the one that I couldn't sit with, was a kid. Seeing that kid in the gym was only the beginning of a cycle of doubt. Bo began to question every shot, every call he made on the radio for mortars and airstrikes. He began to imagine the man whose hand he watched slipping down beneath the berm. I think about like his family, as weird as that is, you know, and going through that grief. And maybe, maybe I ended up killing his kids later. You know, maybe I dropped a mortar on his kids. I don't know, but I killed him. And I know if my dad got killed by, an, you know, a conquering force, I'd probably want to go fight him. Because now I look back and I think, how many people, how many families did I destroy? How many people did I maim and leave legless or armless or unable to sleep with terror? And I was just doing my job. They were actually fighting for something. Ten years after coming home, Bo's still trapped between these conflicting feelings. I'm numb to it a little bit. Like, I'm I'm simultaneously numb, and it it tears my heart out. Does that make sense? Like, I'm numb to keep it from tearing my heart out, because it's like, fuck. Who am I to say that those fucking Taliban fucks are terrible people? They do terrible shit. People throughout history have done terrible shit. But how was I any better? I mean, being... Being death. Becoming that thing that that is our greatest fear. You know? Ending, ending a life. Ending an existence. You know? And it, 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 each time you do it... <clears throat> Your soul is ripped. Your soul is divided as if, as if you're, you're taking on a piece of them. And that's tough shit to deal with. That's the problem with killing is you. (sighs) 
you're stuck in that. You're stuck with that, no matter how much good or how much of a difference you try and make, you are still a killer. You can't undo that. Like Brian Shearer, Bollinger says he was just doing his job in Sangin. He killed to protect the Marines around him, his brothers, from the enemy that was trying to kill them. But it's no longer possible for Bo to leave it at that. Those seeds of empathy that Dutcher first planted have taken root. And Bo suspects that sooner or later, a similar reckoning is coming for everyone in Third Squad. Until they hit that point, until they have their kid that reminds them, that haunts them, they will hold on to this, this concept that they are above it. And until that day, and on that day, they will know that they hurt. They will know that even though they can say they're tough, even though they can say that they don't care, when they see the face of someone they killed in a living person on the other side of the world, and then it haunts you, then you know what you've done. You have no doubt. And to me... I hope the day that that happens, they know. They know that there's somebody else out there who has faced that sudden, shocking, terrifying, painful reality. Painful reality. Because as long as all they are is Taliban, as long as all they are is the enemy to you, you won't feel it. But the day you let your guard down, the day that you have a, an enemy that becomes a friend, that day, that day you will feel. And that day, I hope you go to the VA. That day, I hope you pick up the phone. That day, I hope you pet your fucking dog and don't pick up the gun. Because that day's a hard day. Dutcher's words and actions have helped Bo find a path out of the darkness. That started me, you know, through everything. It's kind of been an ongoing theme of if all we have is our words, that's all the humanity I got, then that's it. But I have to hang on to that. And that, to me, was a big some a, a running theme that I've used in my life. He's saved your life in more than one way. Yeah. Dutcher's example has also helped Bo be a better partner to Hana, who he sometimes affectionately calls Rose. It is going to be a lifelong journey, but isn't, I mean, isn't that just life? I, I would say, you know, not, not that I have copious amounts of wisdom, but 
sitting here after having just celebrated our 11th wedding anniversary, like it's the key to a happy marriage, right? Actively choose that person. Even when you're mad at that person, you're still choosing them and you can be mad at them and still choose them. And I think that that's how you should approach each and every day, even if it's with yourself, even if you're mad at yourself, you know, what choice do you have but to wake up and choose you? It's a choice. It's a fucking choice. I mean, in relationships and mental health and life, I mean, you have to have to actively choose that. And even if it's even even some days when you wake up and you look at your spouse and you're like, oh fuck, <laughs> we got it. We're going. We're that's what we're gonna do today. We're we're gonna fight. Okay, let's let's start the day. But you're still like, you know what? I choose to fight with you. It's going to be petty. But you're my person. And I think the goods outweigh the bads. And Hana's my best friend. And so I don't know what makes it easy. We experience things together and we talk about things and and I choose her every day. Yeah. We're going to have to keep working. And there are going to be lows. But that's just part of the journey. I don't think I'd want it any other way or with any other person. There's your hallmark moment. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Rose. I love you. Bo and Hannah moved from Wyoming to South Dakota in 2014 so that she could attend Black Hills State University. For a while, Bo worked with Brian Shearer on a wildland firefighting crew. But after that, their paths diverged. Shearer went deeper into the fires. He's full-time now with the Rapid City Fire Department. And Bo, he went deeper into the trees. He's got a degree in environmental education, and he's now an apprentice arborist based out of Spearfish. On a day-to-day basis, I play the Lorax. I take care of trees, whether they're, uh, you know, like neighborhood trees or, or like trees around houses, and you're just trimming them up and cleaning dead stuff out of them. He also spends a lot of time working in the forest, nourishing his inner hippie. I can easily understand the trees. Does that make any sense? I mean, I feel like as you can understand people's energies or people see vibes or empaths can feel things, like I can see that in the forest. I can feel that when I'm in the forest, you know, or you can approach a tree and you can feel that it's it's got an attitude towards you. You come up to a dead tree and you're like, this thing's dead. There's no life in it. Like... The spirit has left. Bo knows as well as anyone that what is done cannot be undone. The trigger cannot be unpulled. Once a killer, always a killer. But he's learned how to find beauty and joy in the most simple places, like at home with Hannah and the boys, painting away over that amazing tablecloth, or swaying 30 feet up in a tree watching warblers flit through the canopy. He can't undo the hurtful shit, 
but he can try to create more beauty and joy. And his tree work is a big part of that. By trying to improve the forest or improve the trees and working with the environment rather than dumping, you know, toxic bombs and waste and, you know, this is my way of physically canceling out my effect. This makes me feel better. Like, I like this. To me, it's it's kind of a, uh, I would say, a, a cathartic way of, of paying back for faults I've made in the past. I mean, kind of trying to uh, take care of the world better. Do you talk about these things with the guys that you served with, when you get together, do you talk about what were we doing there? What was it all for? Well, first off, I would say they're my brothers. So I try to avoid political issues because I'm afraid I disagree with them and you don't want to piss off family. You know, I don't know. It seems like we kind of pop back into our old roles when we get together. We just, you know, just having a good time talking about dumb shit. I feel like getting into these political discussions with those guys or these these really deep and transit conversations, it's just going to end up doing that. Where it's like, you know, my subjective perception of the situation will somehow butt up against theirs and we'll just go like this back and forth all day. So have you, you know? ever done that? Like... Brian, he's like pretty, he's pretty staunch in his beliefs. That's Brian Shearer he's talking about. His friend who lives just down the interstate in Rapid City, who he has so much in common with. They both fought wildfires. They're both married with two sons and homes of their own. And they both survived seven months of hell in Sangin. There's some things that we talk about, but I mean, not much. I think... There's this weird conversation piece that Brian and I have had before where there can feel like there's more emotional connection killing a deer than there was for us killing the Taliban, a human, you know? And I think that taking the conversation in deeper than that gets into troubled waters. And you come this way a little bit. Turn, turn your, no, not that turn your shoulders toward me. Yep, there you go. Right. The morning that Bo and Shearer drew the map together at the kitchen table, I got to see how quickly they could pop back into their old roles. And it was really fun, especially when we went outside to take pictures. We're doing it for the gram. Doing it for the gram. There were a couple moments when it seemed like the conversation might be moving toward troubled waters, but the two old friends skillfully avoided them. At one point, when Bo was giving Shearer a tour of his house, he showed him a room in his basement where he keeps mementos from his service. A flag, some photos, a certificate for his Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal. Got a NAM. Heroic service. God damn it. Thank you for your service, Bo. Yeah. It happens. Along with a bunch of stuff with Bo's own name on it, there was one small thing with someone else's. Oh, wow. Oh, you got it. You I mean, that's your tag, huh? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's awesome. The Velcro patch from the front of Dutch's body armor. It has his name, rank, blood type, and a number that allows casualties to be identified without giving their names. 
Bo relayed that number when he called in the medevac request for Dutcher. And he's kept that tag on display ever since he got home. A reminder of the moment when he lost his humanity and of the friend who helped him find it again. Even though Bo and Shearer came out with different perspectives on what they did in Sangin and what it was all for, they've got something else in common that rises above their differences. Something we all learned together right there in Bo's house. Yeah, Benjamin Michael Bollinger. Oh, really? Yeah. I got Bo Dutcher. Yeah, Bo Dutcher Shearer. They both named a son after Michael Dutcher. Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. Original music by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Benjamin Bush, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. If you'd like to see my photographs from Sangin and from our road trip, please visit thirdsquad.com. Also, if you got a minute, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast app. It'll help other people find the show. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.